Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show well as i said on my last podcast i didn't think the third time would be the charm when it came to the fake efforts of repealing Obamacare. And, you know, I hope this whole charade surrounding the repeal of Obamacare is finally over. It really is quite frustrating. You know, the most recent attempt, they were labeling it skinny repeal. Well, it was just a big fat lie. I mean, they really weren't repealing anything. They were leaving the essence of Obamacare alone. They were actually accelerating the death spiral that is Obamacare Because if they had repealed the employer mandates and the individual penalties, but left everything else the same, then the number of healthy people making the rational decision not to buy insurance would skyrocket. And so the sick people that were still buying would be facing higher and higher premiums and have cost the insurance companies bigger and bigger losses, which would have to be subsidized by the taxpayer. So, you know, a lot of Republicans are upset at John McCain for being one of the three Republicans to join all the Democrats in uh, opposing this bill. Well, I think McCain did the GOP a favor because had this thing passed, they would have let the Democrats off the hook. They would have now owned Obamacare and they would be responsible for its failure. So I think it's just as well uh, that they don't have to pretend that they repealed Obamacare, even though it was still there. Now we all know it's still there. It is exactly the way uh, it was originally passed. It's the bill that President Obama championed and signed. It's the one that Nancy Pelosi said, we have to pass it to see what's in it. Well, we've passed it. 
We know what's in it. At least a lot of people don't even understand what's in it. But it is a disaster, and it's going to be a bigger disaster. And, you know, earlier in the year or late last year, everybody thought that the Republicans were going to repeal it. Everybody but me. I mean, you go back to the beginning. I always said that I didn't think that they had the guts to do it. I mean, look, I had I did this interview on Russia Today. It's up on my website in mid-January. Look at the title. The title is Peter Schiff very skeptical about Obamacare repeal. And if you watch that video, what did I say? I said, I don't think they're going to repeal it. And of course, everybody thought, well, of course they're going to repeal it. They've been campaigning on it for years. The president promised it. Everybody who's been running for office as a Republican, elect me and I'm going to get rid of Obamacare. They voted to repeal it many times when Obama was still president. And of course, every time they they voted to repeal it, Obama vetoed it, which of course they knew was going to happen, which as it turns out is the only reason they had the guts to repeal it because they knew that it wouldn't actually happen. But I knew that the Republicans were going to have a tough time taking away the free lunch. I knew that a lot of them who were promising repeal were promising to repeal it, but keep the ban on pre-existing conditions. And I knew that was impossible. You couldn't repeal Obamacare and keep the ban on pre-existing conditions. That is the very essence of Obamacare. That's what Obamacare was all about. You can't repeal it and preserve it at the same time. And so now it fell apart. It's just that the stock market still doesn't understand the significance. The stock market hit another record high again today. The Dow was up. It closed at a new high, 21,841. Although the Dow was the only one of the three major indexes to be positive on the day, the uh, the Nasdaq and the S&P were down. You know, the transports managed a uh, slight bounce from yesterday's drubbing. Transports were down like 300 points yesterday. They were up 37 today, but that's a huge drop. I mean, that's more than 600 points uh, on the Dow if you want to do the percentage math. So there are, again, some more cracks in the armor uh, in the stock market. In fact, um, look at what happened to uh, Starbucks today, the latest uh, victim of uh, declining uh, retail sales. Starbucks stock down almost 10%. It was down more than 10% intraday. It looks like it closed down about 9.3%. It's the biggest drop in about two years. They basically reduced their guidance based on, you know, a drop in sales because I guess consumers don't have enough extra money uh, to buy these expensive coffees. Now, I don't know if you can blame all this on people buying coffee on Amazon, which, by the way, I mentioned uh, at one of my podcasts earlier in the year that I thought eventually Jeff Bezos would surpass Bill Gates as the richest man in the world. And that happened on Wednesday for a few hours. <laughs> uh, Jeff Bezos became the, the richest man in the world. He's now back to the number two slot. So I'm sure that's really going to screw up his weekend, uh, having been the richest person in the world. And now he's relegated to number two because Amazon came out. Once again, they don't have profits, but that never seems to bother investors. I mean, every time Amazon reports earnings and they don't have any, you know, the stock goes down. And of course, it quickly recovers and makes a new high because Jeff Bezos's goal is not to have profits. It's just to continue to grab market share, which is a big problem for a lot of other retailers, you know, like Starbucks that need profits. I mean, a lot of companies, most companies that just can't make a living selling stock, they have to generate profits. And so they have to price their products in order to make a profit. Well, if Amazon is pricing its products just to sell them, obviously it can undercut 
a lot of the competitors, which is one of the problems uh, plaguing the retailers. But of course, the other problem, which I think is more serious, is that their customers are broke. They're loaded up on debt and they have lousy jobs. But, you know, I, before I get to the economy, because we got the GDP numbers today, before I move on, I want to mention, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos's net worth is about a little over $90 billion, $90 billion. And there has never been an American to have a net worth of more than $100 billion. And so if the Amazon stock rises enough, Jeff Bezos will be the first American in history to have a net worth of over $100 billion. But to put this in perspective, because a lot of people don't really understand just how wealthy people used to be in the United States, the wealthiest American ever was John D. Rockefeller. And if you take his net worth, I guess when he died, or maybe at his peak, I'm not really sure which it was. But if you put it into today's dollars, John Rockefeller had a net worth of $670 billion. $670 billion. So obviously, Jeff Bezos has a long way to go if he's ever going to get to $670 billion, when at this point he's just barely over $90 billion. And of course, you know, you can imagine how much real wealth uh, John D. had, because his businesses didn't have the type of valuation, right? Because there's a huge PE on Amazon. Or wait, maybe there's not even a PE if it doesn't have any E. But it's if you look at it as at a relative to sales, so his company is ha- has a huge valuation. So imagine all the real wealth that John Rockefeller had to have a net worth of six hundred and seventy billion. But then you can look at guys like Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie's net worth was three hundred billion. And Cornelius Vanderbilt had a net worth of $175 billion. So these are some high numbers. In fact, I forget, I used to have the chart, I used to talk about it, but I think of the 30 wealthiest Americans ever, only one of them was born after the Second World War. I guess now it's two now, because now you got Jeff Bezos. It used to just be um, uh, Bill Gates, because you know Warren Buffett was born before the war. But most of the wealthiest Americans were born in the 1700s and the 1800s, and they, and they made their fortunes. And, you know, these wealthy guys, they didn't go to college. They didn't even go to high school. I mean, John Rockefeller uh, dropped out of high school uh, at the age of 16. And um, Andrew Carnegie, he dropped out of, uh, I guess, grammar school at the age of 13. And Vanderbilt, he dropped out at age 11. 11 years old, he dropped out of school. You know, when he was 16, he started his ferry business. You know, they used to call him a Commodore. But he started his own business at the age of 16. I mean, that's barely even legal now. I mean, he probably started working at age 11 when he dropped out of elementary school. I mean, you you can't even work at that age now because of, you know, labor laws or things like that. But none of these guys probably could have amassed that kind of wealth with all the regulation and taxes that they have now. But they didn't have to go to school. Whatever they learned, they learned on the streets. And these guys didn't inherit any money. They were self-made. Now, of course, their children and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, they inherited tons of money. I mean, they, you know, their heirs still have a lot of money. But these guys accumulated these net worths uh, from scratch without any education, just in the free market economy of the United States. But, you know, that was just a tangent. Let me go back and, and talk about the economic data that came out today. We finally got the uh, first estimate for second quarter GDP. 
And we did get a final revision to the first quarter. And the last look was 1.4. And they took that down to 1.2. So a little bit down. Interestingly enough, the consumer spending component rose from 1.1 up to 1.9. That's a huge jump in consumer spending. Yet despite that jump in consumer spending, we had a reduction in the GDP, which means you know the real manufacturing business you know part of the GDP uh, was a lot weaker in order to offset that bump in consumer spending. And by the way, consumers are spending based on debt. I was looking at this chart up on a zero hedge that shows the savings rate. And you know the last two times Americans were saving this little was the beginning of the last two recessions because pretty much they've run out of cash, they've run out of buying power. And they, they're eating up their savings to try to make ends meet. And it's usually a sign that the consumer is in distress. And we've got plenty of evidence of that. Uh, yet everybody pre- keeps pretending uh, that, you know, everything is great. The Fed can keep raising rates. They can do quantitative tightening. But anyway, the estimate or consensus for the second quarter was 2.6. In fact, I think the Atlanta Fed uh, jacked their estimate up to 2.8 yesterday based on some of the numbers that came out yesterday. Well, we got 2.6. But the reason we got to 2.6, the inflation rate, the deflator that they used to arrive at 2.6 was 1%. So the government wants us to believe that the inflation rate now in the United States, or at least in the second quarter, was annualizing at 1% a year. I mean, I have a hard time believing that. First of all, I had a hard time believing last quarter that the inflation rate was 2%. I think it's higher than that. But now they're saying it's half of what it was in the first quarter. Now, why is that? The inflation rate is all of a sudden half of what it was. You know, in the first quarter, with a 2% inflation rate and a 1.2% GDP, that means nominal GDP was up 3.2%. Well, the second quarter... Nominal GDP was only up 3.6%. I mean, barely faster. You know, if you look at the way the government reports it, the economy grew more than twice as fast in the second quarter as it did in the first. But if you look at nominal GDP, it's only about 10% faster, not twice as fast. Now, had the government assumed that inflation was consistent, if inflation was still 2% in the second quarter, like it was in the first quarter, then a real GDP growth wouldn't have been 2.6. It would have been 1.6. Would have been 1.2 in Q1 and 1.6 in Q2. Pretty weak. But now the government says, well, inflation was cut in half. You know, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. And in fact, I think it's more likely that inflation is twice what it was in the first quarter in both quarters. I mean, I, I would believe that inflation is 4% before I believe that it's 1%. In fact, I read another article how rents just hit an all-time record high. They keep on rising. Rents are supposedly the biggest component of the CPI. Yet if you look at the CPI, rents are barely moving. But if you actually look at the rent that people have to pay, rents are going way up. So I'm sure that the real inflation rate is more like 4%, if not higher. But if the inflation rate is 4%, we're in recession. I mean, if it's at 3.7% this year, we're in recession. So I don't believe these numbers. I think the economy is weak. I think that the anecdotal evidence suggests how weak the economy is. And now look at the weakness in the dollar. The dollar is reflecting that. The dollar is reflecting the failure of the Trump administration to deliver on a repeal of Obamacare. 
And I think the failure of the Trump administration to live up to a lot of the expectations that the market had. You know, the dollar index closed the week at 93.3, down about 0.6 on the day. So it's another down week. You know, we had a rally yesterday after the dollar made a new low. I think the dollar index got down at like 93.10. And then we rallied back above 94. We couldn't hold that handle. So we closed around 93.90. And then down again today, surrendered all of yesterday's advance. Well, the only currency that's actually been weak, because the euro's at a two-year high, the Australian dollar's at a two-year high, but you got the Swiss franc falling. You know, it's falling to, I don't know, a year, year and a half low, maybe close to a two-year low against the euro. And I think this represents probably a good buy in the Swiss franc. I think people are looking at the fact that the the, uh, euro is rising and now you don't need a safe haven. And so the Swiss franc has got a safe haven status. And so maybe people don't feel they need the safety of the Swiss franc because they feel more confident in uh, in the euro. But historically, if the euro is strong, the Swiss franc is going to be stronger and if you continue to get strength in the euro and weakness in the dollar, the Swiss franc is going to turn around. It's only a question of time. And especially if we get some weakness in global equity markets, people will look at it as a safe haven. Meanwhile, the price of gold obviously moving much higher now in terms of Swiss francs. Gold was up 10 bucks about today in, uh, in U.S. dollars. We're now back Almost at 1270. We closed right below it, I think 1269 and change. Remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we were almost all the way down to 1200. We never quite made it. We, we got close, 1210 or something like that. People were looking for it to break 1200. It was going to fall below. There is a mountain of support down there. There's lots of buying of gold. And all of a sudden, we're back up. Now we're at 1270. We're much closer to 1300 than 1200. Silver also up 17 bucks. Gold stocks are continuing to inch higher closing near the highs of the day today. No spectacular moves, although some individual stocks have had good moves. And there were some, you know, I think Newmont Mining was up maybe 6 or 7% one day this week. It had better than expected earnings. Barrick also uh, had a good reaction to its earnings. Although Gold Corp was down about, I think, what, 7% I think yesterday on its earnings, which to me didn't look that bad. But for some reason, uh, the stock sold off. But in general, it looks like some of the bigger name stocks were reacting better uh, to their earnings reports this week. Oil also having a very strong week. I think it was up just about every day of the week. We almost closed at $50, 49.77 for a barrel of crude. Uh, you know, people were talking again, 30 or breaking 30 in the 20s just a couple of weeks ago, and we've had a nice rally. This is what I've been saying. You know, commodities, oil in particular, priced in dollars, a weak dollar is good for commodities and it's good for the global economy. It's good for the emerging markets. And so you're just starting to see this now. And I think you're going to see more of this. I mean, these markets haven't even really broken out yet. But I am looking at a lot of the companies that operate in this space, uh, a lot of stocks that I own, and they're all going up now. And I think they're going up. The market is starting to sense that the dollar has turned. And remember, at the beginning of the year, nobody on Wall Street thought the dollar was going to go down. They all thought it was going to go up. Everybody thought it was going to go up. And look at it. It just keeps on going down. I remember, you know, when I went to the SALT conference back in in May, I commented that Jeffrey Gundelach had a presentation and he was bearish on the dollar. And he was like the first guy. And I, you know, I said he was a mainstream guy. And apparently he's not as much in the mainstream as I thought. 
Uh, but at least the mainstream acknowledges that he's out there. I mean, they completely write me off as a kook, but he's he's you know he's a respectable guy, and and he was saying the dollar was going to go down. It was like the first person other than me that I heard saying this, and he was investing in you know emerging markets and get out of the dollar. And so you know I talk about it on this podcast, and I guess you know he listens to it or somebody listens to it and talks to him because he he tweeted about it. But then he said that I was you know overstating his bearishness on the dollar. So he was bearish, but he was still cautiously bearish. You know I, I might have made it sound like he was too bearish, but I even remember saying that the only disagreement I had with Gundalak's analysis is I didn't think he was bearish enough on the dollar. Now I wonder if he's gotten more bearish. Uh, you know, since that time, because it's certainly probably fallen a lot more than he believed it was going to fall at the time. You know, by the way, you know, uh, Gundelok sent tweeted about me again today. Again, you know, evidence that maybe he's listening to this podcast because he mentioned the fact that I talked about the anonymous text that I was getting from some Bitcoiners threatening me because I was, you know, I wasn't re- wearing the, the Bitcoin ribbon. And, you know, of course, if he's listening, I mean, that was at the, the tail end. It was in the last 10 minutes of a 30 minute podcast. So if he's listening, he's, you know, he's listening to the whole thing in order to have uh, heard that. Anyway, you know, I did reach out to him. I gave him a phone call today, left a message. I haven't heard back. I said, I'm going to be out in L.A. I'd like to I'd like to say hello to him in person. I'm going to be out in L.A. in a few weeks. I'm doing the San Francisco money show. So those of you in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, that's a free show. You can register at themoneyshow.com for San Francisco. I'm going to be there for a couple of days. I haven't done the San Francisco Money Show in a few years. So if you're in the Bay Area, it's a good opportunity uh, to come and see me at the Money Show. But I'm going to be in L.A. for a few days first. Uh, and so that's where uh, Jeff Gundlach's uh, firm is, is based. So maybe I'll be able to meet him. You know, one of the reasons I'm going to be in L.A., apart from the fact that I have friends there and I have an office there, is I'm going to do the Joe Rogan podcast again. If you remember, I did Joe Rogan's show a few years ago. It was a three-hour interview, and he only interviews you if you're in the studio. So that's the reason, really, I haven't done it again is because I really haven't, you know, spent much time out on the West Coast. I've been, you know, going down to Puerto Rico a lot, so I haven't uh, haven't had a chance to spend much time out on the West Coast. But I'm going to go out there this time, and I'm making sure to stock by Joe Rogan. You know, he was popular when I did the show a few years ago, but I think he's even more popular now. So hopefully uh, help get the message out through uh, through Joe Rogan. But we'll see if I also get a chance to uh, meet with uh, Jeff Gundelock because he does sound like a like a pretty good guy. And at least, you know, he seems like he defends me every once in a while. And it's interesting. If you look at the tweets, there's a lot of comments that, you know, there are a lot of people that are attacking me and attacking him for even mentioning me because, you know, I'm such a I'm so wrong. I'm a stop clock. I'm kind of a kook. So, you know, that that's the reputation that I get. So maybe maybe he's kind of like. There's a an intersection there of mainstream people and people on the fringe, right? People that follow me. And so where they have that intersection, you get that, that kind of dialogue. You get the people that like me and think I'm a good guy and the people that say, hey, why are you, why are you, you, know, why are you uh, referencing Peter Schiff? He's a stop clock. He's just been wrong and wrong. But I think the people who just dismiss me and say I'm always wrong really don't pay attention to what I have to say. Because the people that listen to me regularly really understand just how many things I've gotten right over the years. Of course, I've gotten things wrong. Nobody can get everything right. But I think on balance, if you look at all of the forecasts I've made, political forecasts, economic forecasts, market forecasts, I'm generally a lot better uh, than what people say. You know, even the coverage, like I was reading some articles on the bull bear debate, and if people were writing up that I did in uh, at Freedom Fest. You know, we actually had more applause for the bears this time than the bulls. He did the guy that wrote the articles, they're not mentioning that. 
uh, that they think the Bears won the debate. But again, the guy doesn't mention that when I was at that bull bear debate last year, I said the market was going to go up. I, I didn't say it was going to come crashing down. I said it was overvalued. I said it was a bubble, but I thought it would get bigger. But I was a bear because fundamentally I knew the market was overvalued, but I didn't say it was going to go down. But what I told people to do was buy foreign stocks instead. And that was better. And that's the same thing I said this time. I didn't go on that bull bear debate saying the market's going to crash. I say it may have a nice pullback here and it could be bigger than we normally have because I think the Yellen put could have a much lower strike price under Trump than it did under Obama or it would have under Clinton. But I'm still maintaining that the Fed is not going to let this market implode. So I'm not telling people to short the market. I'm telling people to buy foreign stocks. I'm telling people to short the dollar by getting into foreign assets. I'm telling people to buy gold. That's what I said last year. So, you know, a lot of people that even report on what I say, they try to make me more bearish than I am. So they, you know, because they know that if they keep pretending that I say the stock market's going to crash all the time, then they can keep saying how wrong I am because the stock market's not crashing. But that's called creating a straw man, right? You build a straw man that I never mentioned and you attack the straw man instead of attacking me because I don't go on there and say the market's going to crash. That's not what I am. I'm not Harry Dent. I've got a different scenario that I've been recommending or I've been forecasting. And the fact that the stock market's been going up doesn't prove me wrong because I've conceded that the market's going to go up. When you have this kind of cheap money floating around, you know, this is what's going to happen to the market. Now, I, I do uh, think that we could have a pullback before the Fed comes in because look at the fundamentals. I mean, people are ignoring uh, the fact that a lot of the good things are not happening like we're not getting, uh, you know, repeal of Obamacare. The currency markets are figuring it out, but the stock market traders are still oblivious. Tobacco stocks also got clobbered today. The government came out and issued, I guess, a warning or something that the FDA is going to come out and they're going to require that cigarettes have less nicotine. The goal is to make smoking less addictive, and so they want to cut down on the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. And so as a result of this announcement, you saw big selling in tobacco stocks. In fact, um, a Philip Morris International, which was the spinoff from Altria. Remember, Altria used to be called Philip Morris, and they changed the name to Altria. And then they spun off all their, their international division, all their sales outside the United States. And they that, that company kept the name Philip Morris, and they got a symbol PM. And uh, Altria has got the symbol M-O, you know, momentum, M-O. And that, that was the old symbol for Philip Morris uh, before it changed its name to, to, uh, to Altria. But initially, both uh, Philip Morris and Altria were down maybe about 10% before people realized that Philip Morris doesn't even sell cigarettes in America. So it's, it, it's exempt from whatever the FDA is going to do. So that stock was initially down about 10% too or something like that, 7 8%, I can't remember exactly. But then it closed positive, right? Because people just, you know, they just start selling everything indiscriminately. So if you were paying attention to what was going on, you actually had a very good trading opportunity in shares of Philip Morris International. But um, Altria Group closed near the lows, down 9.5% on the day, although off the spike low. I mean, the low of the stock was like $60. That was a 52-week low. It closed about 10% off the low at just under 67. So still, if you happen to be awake, but I'm sure there were some people that had some stops in there beneath the market. They really they really probably got, got nailed on that. But Philip Morris was almost as weak 
I mean, that stock, the low on the day was 109.30, and it closed at 118.51, up 32 cents. Now, shares of British American Tobacco, they have an ADR. They were down about 7% because they do have a lot of sales in the United States. But, you know, if you think about what the FDA is doing, it's not actually bad for the cigarette companies. Think about it. I mean, the government thinks that, well, you know, if we just have less nicotine in cigarettes, then when people smoke cigarettes, they won't get as much nicotine and, and they won't get addicted. You know, that's not the way it works. Again, government, it's all about form over substance. It's like, let's do something that sounds good so we can feel good about ourselves. I mean, what is going to happen? I'm not really sure the exact amounts, but let's say the government is going to require that cigarettes have half the amount of nicotine that they do now. I'm not really sure what the requirement is, but let's just say it's a 50% reduction. And now they're going to say, hey, this is great. Cigarettes have half the, the nicotine. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means if you used to smoke a pack a day, well, now you're going to smoke two packs a day. I mean, if you need the nicotine, and if cigarettes are simply the delivery mechanism for the nicotine, if you need nicotine and you have to smoke more cigarettes to get the nicotine, then that's what you're going to do. You see, if all the cigarettes have less nicotine, it's not like you can just switch brands to one that has more nicotine. They're all going to have less nicotine. So you're going to have to smoke more cigarettes, which means you're going to have to buy more cigarettes, which means the cigarette companies are going to make more money selling more cigarettes that have less nicotine because now the customers needs more. So this is going to backfire. Also, I think they're going to be cracking down on like the smokeless tobacco where you, you know, you can get your nicotine through one of these, uh, you know, smokeless cigarettes where you're not really smoking something. Well, that's probably good for the tobacco companies because if they increase the cost of, uh, you know, the smokeless tobacco, if they have more regulations there, well, then fewer people will give up actual smoking to go to the uh, electronic cigarettes. They'll just smoke regular cigarettes. And so the, the tobacco companies will make even more money because they'll sell more tobacco. So all of this is just more government nonsense, more government regulation. Look, who among us on the planet Earth doesn't know that cigarette smoking is bad for you. I mean, I know back in the 1940s and 50s and earlier, people didn't know that. For some reason, they thought inhaling smoke into your lungs was perfectly good. I mean, doctors would tell you to do it, right? Oh, you're, oh, you're constipated. Oh, smoke some cigarettes. That'll help you. I mean, my mother smoked cigarettes while she was pregnant with me to relax her. I mean, for all, she, you know, she might have been smoking, you know, while she was going into labor. I don't know. But I mean, she would, she smoked and drunk. She had a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other hand and me in her belly. I mean, that, that was the 1960s, right? But for some reason, people didn't think that smoking was bad until people started dying of lung cancer, right? My grandmother died of lung cancer. She smoked her entire life until she was, she didn't quit smoking until she was diagnosed with lung cancer. Although at that point, what the hell? I mean, you might as well keep smoking. It's, you know, talk about closing the barn door after the horses are gone. But I can understand people didn't realize it for whatever reason, they didn't think it was bad. We all know that smoking is bad. Okay, so we're all adults. We can make a decision to, you know, to smoke cigarettes. And, you know, by the way, I remember I used to buy cigarettes for my grandmother. She used to send me to the store and buy them. When I was like, I remember when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I went and bought her cigarettes. She smoked Benjamin and Hedges 100s. She, I, I think they were 65 cents a pack. And I would put the money in a cigarette machine. They don't even have those anymore. Right? I don't think those are legal. Because anybody could buy the cigarettes back then. I mean, there was there was no one checking your ID when you put money into a into a cigarette machine, 
right? So, you know, now, I mean, you, you have to, you can't buy them as a miner. They're extremely expensive at this point. I mean, I have no idea what they cost because I don't buy them because I know they're not good for you. So I don't smoke. But, you know, if people want to smoke, if they enjoy it so much and they don't care about the health uh, considerations, okay, fine, let them do it. People have the right to make their own decisions. And, you know, there are some people that smoke their whole lives and nothing. Look at George Burns. Wait, he lived to 100? I mean, I think he smoked cigars, not cigarettes, but they could be worse for you. I don't know. But he smoked and smoked and nothing happened to him. I mean, so there are plenty of people that smoke and, and don't get lung cancer. And there are people who get lung cancer who've never smoked. But at this point, this day and age, it's not a secret. We all know smoking is bad. And if you do it anyway, well, then, you know, you, you, you know. So the government doesn't have to come down and, and put these limits on how much nicotine. I mean, if you want to sell a cigarette with extra nicotine, just why not? Why can't you do it? This is pure nicotine. You know, buy, buy this cigarette. I mean, people know it's bad for you. But if the government just simply says, well, the cigarettes have to have less, you're going to buy more cigarettes. That's all. This is all a bunch of nonsense. But it created a buying opportunity in these stocks. Again, I, I can't give stock advice on, on my podcast, individual stock advice. But I'm just, you know, throwing this out there as an example. You get, you get a reaction. And in the case of Philip Morris International, it's already over. The stock, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They sold off a tobacco stock that doesn't even sell tobacco in America because the FDA's regulations only apply to cigarettes being sold here. Now, of course, what does that open up, right? Now there's smuggling, right? Because let's say the cigarettes that you could buy in South America or Mexico or Canada have twice the nicotine or three times the nicotine as the cigarettes that are sold here. But people are going to want to smuggle them in. Right. Because obviously those cigarettes are more valuable because, you know, the cigarette companies aren't going to cut the price of their cigarettes in half just because there's half the nicotine. They're probably still going to cost the exact same amount of money. So you're going to have to just spend twice as much money to get your fix of nicotine. But if you can buy the ones down in Mexico or up in Canada, you can save money. So that opens up, you know, a black market. Now you get some crime, you get some smuggling, people trying to bring in these illegal cigarettes right over the border. This is all the unintended consequences of all this government regulation. Is government ever going to learn? No, they're never going to learn because it's all about form over substance. Just like the phony Obamacare repeal effort, all they care about is pretending they care. Like another example of pretending you care. Look what the uh, people in Seattle are doing now with the minimum wage, right? They got that ridiculous $15 minimum wage. Well, I just read that they want to apply that higher minimum wage to workers that have Down syndrome or whatever it is, and they're disabled and their productivity is extremely low. And if, if the minimum wage applied, they would never get a job. I mean, I've talked about this. I mean, this is what happened to me when I went on The Daily Show and tried to explain this, and they tried to make me out to a bad guy. And, you know, just, you know, go listen to my YouTube video where I explain what happened with The Daily Show hit piece. But even the, the, the federal government understood the problems that the minimum wage would create for uh, people that were uh, intellectually challenged. But the minimum wage doesn't apply to them. They, they, can be, they can get paid 25 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour. It all depends on their productivity. But now Seattle wants to apply the $15 an hour minimum wage to everybody, including uh, people with disabilities. So you got to pay somebody with a learning disability. You got to pay this person $15 an hour. No one is going to do that. Basically, what this law is going to do is cause everybody or pretty much everybody with a disability to be fired. You're going to make it illegal for mentally disabled people to work 
in the Seattle area. Now, I guess they can work outside of Seattle. I'm not sure how far, uh, you know, the, the border stretches. But this is all about liberals trying to feel good about themselves. See, because the very people that they want to help are the ones that they put out of work. And now they can just feel good because, hey, you know, we, we don't we think it's unfair that people are being exploited and they're only being paid two dollars an hour. We want them to pay to get paid fifteen dollars an hour. So they pass a law and they don't end up getting paid fifteen dollars an hour. They lose their jobs and they get paid nothing. But the liberals feel good about themselves without understanding the real world consequences of what they've done. Now, there are people that are going to say, well, you know, you can't support a family on two dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. A lot of the mentally disabled people who are working are not supporting a family. They're still living with their family. You know, they're, they're, living, they're living with their parents, even if they're adults. They're, they never left home. They're, not, they're working for the self-esteem. They're working for the personal satisfaction that comes from being productive. They're working for the camaraderie, for the relationship that they form with their coworkers, with customers. Usually, for a lot of people, this is the, the, the most important thing they've got going for them is, is, is their jobs. And now these liberals, for the sake of their own uh, personal uh, you know, desire to feel good about themselves, right? these elitists, many of whom are earning lots of money, very rich, right? so they can feel good about themselves as if they're doing the right thing. They're just putting all these people out of work and taking away from them the most important aspects of their life, the the thing that gives their lives meaning, that gives them pride in themselves, that makes them feel like they're they're contributing, that they're taking part, right? And all this has to be sacrificed uh, on the altar of, of 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 a liberal conscience, right? So they can feel good and look down on everybody else and pretend they're so caring when they're actually heartless. Oh, by the way, now that uh, they can stop pretending that they're going to repeal Obamacare. Now the Republicans can focus on uh, tax reform, right? This, and this is the fun part, right? This is what they really want to do, right? Because Republicans, more than taking away a free lunch, right, trying to, you know, make government smaller, what they really like to do is give out tax cuts and tax breaks, right? That's, that's, that's the fun part of being a Republican, right? That's their pork or that's their, you know, that's their free lunch. We're going to cut taxes. And, you know, part of the fraud of, involved in this tax cut is because there is no cut of government spending. They're not going to make government smaller and less expensive. In fact, the Republicans are going to make government bigger and more expensive. So how do you make government bigger with your left hand and then give the taxpayers a cut with your right hand? I mean, if government is going to be bigger, if government is going to be more expensive, well, then, you know, you need a tax increase. You can't have a tax cut. We have to pay for that government. But the Republicans want to give out their version of a free lunch, right? The Democrats' version is generally some kind of welfare check, right, where they give you money for nothing. Well, the Republican version is where they give you a tax cut for nothing because you don't give up any government. You just get the tax cut, but you have more expensive government. Now, the most expensive way to pay for government is by borrowing, right? Borrowing is more expensive than taxation. Just like if you buy something with a credit card, it's more expensive than buying it with cash, right? I mean, when you buy something with a credit card, it's not free. You still have to pay for it. You just have to pay for it over time with interest. And so if we have a big government and we don't pay for it with current taxation, then we have to borrow the money and we have to pay it back with future taxation that's even higher than the current taxation because now we have to pay the interest. 
And of course, the other way that we pay for it, if the government doesn't legitimately borrow the money, is the Fed buys the bonds and it prints the money and we, we pay for it through inflation. And so the amount of purchasing power that you're going to lose over time because of the inflation that is being created to monetize the debts that were produced by the tax hikes, that is going to be more purchasing power than you would have lost had you just paid the taxes instead. But politically, people think they're getting something for nothing when they get a tax cut and they pay for government through debt and through inflation. So this is, again, it's mu as much a fraud as this whole charade on Obamacare repeal. No matter what they end up passing, there are no tax cuts because the government is getting more expensive. And the cost of government is not what it taxes, but what it spends. And if spending is going up, it doesn't matter what's happening to taxes, the cost of government is going up. All that's changing is how we pay for that spending. And believe me, it's going to be more expensive to pay for it after the Republicans are finished with their tax cuts or tax reforms than it was before. So what they really should do is have some significant cuts to government spending. Now, for a while, they were talking about tax reform because they were going to have the, the, the border-adjusted tax, the BAT. Remember, I went over this and I told you it wasn't going to work. There's no way they could do this. And if they passed it, they would destroy U.S. retailing because people would just buy stuff uh, from foreign companies on their websites. Nobody would shop in the U.S. It would be the death of retail. And there was a lot of opposition to it. And now the Republicans admitted just yesterday that it's dead. It's off the table. They're moving on. There is no bat tax. Now, of course, I like the idea of moving towards a consumption tax, just not the bat tax. I'd like to have a national sales tax. And if not that, a national value added tax, but not in addition to the income tax instead of the income tax. You see, you never want to create another tax source for the government because then they'll just raise that. And even if you cut the income tax and then have a, a, a that, some future administration will just raise the income tax back up. So I prefer a consumption tax, but not in addition to the income tax instead of the income tax. So kill the income tax, make it go away, so it never comes back, and then you can put in a VAT. Or actually, I like the honesty of just a flat-out sales tax, national sales tax, just like the states have a sales tax. Just tack a, a federal sales tax on that, and that's a much more efficient way to pay for government spending. But that's not what's going to happen. We're not going to have any kind of transformative move uh, to tax consumption or spending. We're going to stick with the income tax. The question is, where are the rates going to go? How low are they going to cut them? What deductions are they going to eliminate? You know, the president is saying that the rich are not going to get a tax break. It's the middle class that are going to get a tax break. Why does everybody want to give tax breaks to the middle class? For the same reason that Willie Sutton wanted to rob banks, right? It's not because that's where the money is. That's where the votes are, right? Everybody wants to pander to the middle class. So Donald Trump is saying, oh, the middle class has been getting screwed. They need to have a tax cut. Well, if you don't want to screw the middle class, then cut government spending because you're just fooling the middle class if you're going to give them a tax cut that isn't paid for and now they have more inflation or now there's more debt that is driving up interest rates or crowding out capital investment and reducing their standard of living. But while the Republicans did fail to repeal Obamacare, even fake repeal, right, they will succeed in cutting taxes. I mean, that's the one thing you know that Republicans could agree on is we want to cut taxes. So it's going to happen. The only question is, the form of the tax cut. But regardless, what is that tax cut going to produce? Bigger deficits. The deficits are going up. And I wrote that at the very beginning. 
you know, one of my first commentaries uh, when Trump was elected, it was something like the deficits are going to be huge uh, under 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 Trump. And I'm going to be proven right on this prediction as well, because these tax cuts are going to produce big deficits because we're going to reduce the, the revenue coming into the government as the expenditures go up. And then as we slip into recession and then you have the, the natural reduction in revenues because people aren't paying as much taxes because they've lost their jobs. And now you have the, the, the safety nets and the stabilizers kicking in, people getting unemployment and extended benefits and more welfare, more disability and more food stamps and all this stuff. Right. Then all of a sudden the government is spending more. In the meantime, interest rates have gone up. The Fed has raised interest rates. And so therefore, the cost to the government to service these larger deficits that's going to go up too. And then, of course, that money has to be borrowed as well. So the extra money that they need to pay the interest on the rising debt is more money they have to borrow, which makes the deficits even bigger. So this thing is going to skyrocket and it is going to ultimately sink the dollar. You know, this dollar decline, we're just getting started here. It is long overdue. The dollar never should have rallied as much as it did. It was a bubble. It was based on a misunderstanding of the U.S. economy, of the efficacy of Fed policy, of the trajectory of Fed policy. I mean, the market still believes the Fed's going to keep hiking. The market still believes we're going to get quantitative tightening. Yet despite all that, the dollar is falling. I mean, if the dollar is this weak, when the market still believes rates are going up, imagine how much weaker the dollar is going to get when they realize that they're going down. If the dollar is weak, when people think we're going to have quantitative tightening, imagine how much weaker it's going to be when they find out it's more quantitative easing. So this is just the beginning of a huge dollar bear market. We are still much closer to the top than the bottom. We have a long way to go on the downside. As I said in the last podcast, do yourself a favor. Get money out of dollars now. You know, Get your money into these foreign markets, into emerging markets, into the areas of the world that are going to benefit from a weak dollar. Get into gold, get into silver, get into the Swiss francs. I mentioned the weakness in the Swiss franc that will not last. I mean, so you've got a, a window of opportunity. Don't know how much longer it's going to stay open, right? Because the dollar, even though we're at a two-year low, you know, against some currencies, it wasn't just January. We were, you know, near 14, 15-year high. So the lion's share of the decline is still coming. I mean, we've only got a small taste of it. This is just a little down payment on the gains that are coming. Uh, if I'm right about what's going to happen to the U.S. economy and what's going to happen uh, to Fed policy. And when it comes to these forecasts, I am usually right. I'm always early. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, you know, I can never time this thing. Nobody can. I always see these things coming from a mile away and I try to get people prepared. But I think now you've got all the warning signs in place that the event that I saw, you know, looming out there on the horizon is now just around the corner.